0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Goliver. What's up, man?
1: Not too much, Andrew. You know, I was just doing some reading over the weekend, and I came across a nice piece by Mark Stein for the New York Times. It was about LeBron James and how he is almost certainly not going to be in this year's postseason. And it really seemed like Mark was trying to like let down the casual fans of America. You know, just be like, hey, guys, just FYI, and I, I know you're probably not following this train wreck of a Lakers season. You probably weren't agonizing over LeBron James throwing the ball off the back of the backboard in the right. third quarter of a Saturday night loss to the Phoenix Suns in Phoenix, of all places. Um, but just to be clear, that two-month block of your life every single year, which gets dominated by LeBron James, uh, you know, on-court play, podium performances, storylines, all the other intrigue that goes around the playoffs, it's just not going to be happening this year. Right, and- so
0: he's basically preparing them emotionally for the reality that's about to hit in like a month from now.
1: Yeah, it's like your life is... If you just are a casual fan about basketball it's going to suck in May and June and you're probably not going to be watching the games. Was yeah. was sort of where I thought he was, you know, kind of politely and gently trying to go. Okay. And Andrew, I think his point is so well taken, but it's way worse for guys like us and our listeners. I'm not sure that we have fully comprehended how rough these playoffs are going to be on a day in day out basis without LeBron James. Because we're just so used to having him, I don't know if you remember. Last year, I wrote a piece about like what would have happened if LeBron just never existed, or like uh-huh. you know he always used to say, "Oh, I'm just a statistic." You know, I easily could have not made it out of Akron, so I like did the thought, the think piece, the thought uh, exercise of like, okay. Like, let's imagine, you know, he's just not around. I mean, guys like Roy Hibbert come out looking great in that exercise, right? (laughs) Like the the, the forgotten soldiers of the Eastern Conference who just got steamrolled by LeBron for the last eight years, um, all of a sudden are really elevated in a way that we would not be prepared for. Okay. But I want you to really think about this, Andrew. Coming up in the next two months, the podiums in the Eastern Conference are going to be dominated by, and you know, I love the podiums. Giannis, who's still in that early career KD stage where he doesn't want to say anything interesting. Uh Kawhi Leonard, who would staple his mouth shut if he could. Kyrie Irving, who's in open war with the media. Uh, And Joel Embiid, who's actually pretty good. And then the Pacers, who, you know, they're going to be drawing straws to see who goes up to the podium because, you know, the casual fans are not even going to know who any of their players are, right? That is from a content perspective an absolute nightmare. Like Joel Embiid better be hiring an entire team of comedy writers to get his material together. And the Sixers better make it out of the first round uh, of the playoffs. Otherwise, we're going to have nothing to talk about. In terms of the encore play itself, what were the big storylines from last year? LeBron coming back, dominating the Pacers. LeBron completely punking the Raptors. I mean, that was just like two solid weeks of A-plus content there. And then him pulling it off, you know, Miracle, uh, against the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals, like there are storylines for sure. You know, I'm more excited about Giannis and the Bucks than anybody else in this galaxy uh, right. right now. But really, put yourself there, Andrew. Try to fast forward your own life to May and June. Can you see how bleak <laughs> and dark it might get when I'm sort of running through these possibilities for what we're staring at?
0: Well, here's the thing. Okay, it's pretty bleak and dark. Right now, it seems like half the NBA is miserable. The other half is just sort of going through the motions, either tanking or kind of flatlining on their way to the finish line. You know, the Blazers and the Raptors are the only teams that seem to be playing well right now. The Bucks. so well, yes, the Bucks. <laughs> the Bucks have been the gold standard for regular season dominance all year long. So that story has continued as well. You're right, but. Um, in general if you gave me the chance to fast forward to may and june i'm i'm taking that 10 times out of 10 regardless of whether lebron is going to be there uh i will say hearing you talk about the podium possibilities and rubbing your hands together getting ready you know to be on your nightly duty uh tracking the press conferences that too makes me very excited for the playoffs and LeBron, Andrew, you're you're
1: trying to talk yourself into some things that you're not really realizing. You think you're going to be re- like just waiting to see what clips I come up with from the Brooklyn Nets, Toronto Raptors post game, or the Detroit Pistons, Indiana Pacers game three <laughs> recap. You're really going to be believe just
0: in you, man. That's the point. <laughs> okay, I think that you will be able to find some fire. Whatever happens in the playoffs, um, it's true I, that imagining, I don't like, see it. Reggie Jackson on the podium is a little bit dark and hard to get excited about. And, um, I mean, full disclosure, you had mentioned the possibility of starting the podcast with five minutes of coverage on the battle for the eighth seed between the Magic and the Hornets and pretending to give a a spirited debate.
1: (laughs) Andrew, this is what I mean about the LeBron vacuum effect, right? So we can pretty much write the Lakers out of this Western Conference eight seed. So let's stumble around in the dark for like other stories to replace... You know, the big LeBron vacuum that's going to be there, right? Well, here we go. Should we get into the Orlando Magic for the Charlotte Hornets? Which team needs that eighth seed more? Which one would be a greater symbolic victory? Do we crown (laughs) Steve Clifford as a coach of the year candidate if he gets his team into that eighth seed? What kind of a validation, Andrew, do you think this would mean for a player like Nikola Vucevic, who's been just <laughs> working his entire career for this moment? Look, oh, Kemba man, Walker. Can we
0: carve out some time to talk about the valor of Terrence Ross and DJ Augustine this year? There's, those guys are playing great. And the the, I, the Thunder, or not the Thunder, the Magic. Um, what's it, the, uh, let's say Jonathan Isaac also is another guy who has played really well. And that's about all I have to say about the, the magic over the last. No, that
1: weeks. was, that was impressive. You named three <laughs> magic players. Uh, that's more than you've named all season long, but don't even get me started about Kemba Walker. I mean, what a crowning achievement to host all-star weekend, to start in the all-star game, and then to carry single-handedly the Hornets to the eighth seed and a four round, a four game sweep at the first round would just be an unbelievable thing. This is the depths that we're talking about that we're going to have to get into, Andrew. This isn't even a joke. Like, we're going to have to have these kinds of conversations because the Lakers let us down.
0: Yeah, well, I will say, and look, as an NBA podcast, I guess it's incumbent on us to make this league as exciting as possible and engaging for listeners. It does sort of feel like the whole sport and the whole league is in a transition this year. And I think that next year a playoffs without LeBron on a on a real title contender is is something that will be a lot more exciting because you know there will be more parity at the top and there's no foregone conclusions and this is assuming that Kevin Durant leaves this summer and um and I I could get pretty excited about that reality where you've got KD in the East or on the Clippers and then Steph and you've got Kyrie wherever he ends up, Anthony Davis, wherever he ends up, and they're all kind of battling together. Giannis and the Bucks will still be there. That would be a lot of fun. I I hear what you're saying though, where like LeBron has been the foil who has been able to keep these Golden State years interesting. And removing him and his star power will absolutely create a, a vacuum of sorts. And we're all going to be kind of looking around being like, OK, so what the hell do we get excited about here? But exactly. one thing I would push back on, though, is I do think if we get to the second round of the Eastern Conference playoffs and it's Boston, Philly, Toronto and Milwaukee, which, you know, it's, it's not guaranteed because Boston could be in the fifth spot. Philly could kind of like half-ass their way to a four seed and we could be robbed of that final four. But if we do have that final four in the playoffs, like I will be very, very excited and I will be headed into both those matchups without any idea who's going to win and how it all shakes out. And I think that alone will make the playoffs worth watching. And then, you know, Golden State's a mess too. And it'll be a fascinating character study for them along the way.
1: I mean, you're, you're really putting in work here. I'm impressed. Um,
0: (laughs) It's our job, man. We got to make this fun.
1: That final four you painted sounds really good, and that is absolutely the dream scenario to kind of salvage this thing, and especially from the TV partner's perspective, like, that's who they really want to see, right? Yeah. But aren't you also going to be watching those series thinking just like, man, it'd be a lot better if LeBron was in one of these, just, like, doing what he does, tearing apart these teams like he did for the last eight years? That thought's going to be in my head, but here's another way to look at this. What will LeBron do for those two months of his life when he's usually locked in doing the zero dark twenty three and all that other nonsense? Like, if you're LeBron, and this is a serious question because like this guy's the face of what like a multi million dollar uh, media empire, you know, striving for a billion, striving for the greatness of a billion dollars. Yeah. Do you just go dark for two months? Um, you know, as soon as the the Lakers are eliminated, give no interviews, like you you gave no interviews during the injury. You, you certainly don't show up courtside with like Bill Russell and like watch the games, do you? Uh, well, that would be kind of awkward. Maybe you can like tie it into some former teammate. Maybe he goes to some Celtics games and pretends to cheer for Kyrie. Uh, do you just focus on the television shows and just keep bringing Anthony Davis back on for more editions of the shop until he finally, uh, you know, winds up just no. being a member of the Los Angeles Lakers? Like, what I, do you do here?
0: I do not need more editions of the shop Um, and I do kind of hope he lays low for the two months that the Lakers are outside the spotlight I hope he disappears because over the last month or so and I've always worried about this with LeBron like him turning into basketball's Brett Favre is a real possibility and almost an inevitability and it seems like we're already there And I just, I hope he recognizes that risk and decides to say, all right, this season did not go as planned. I'm going to lay low and regroup and show up in july and try to make this thing work and um you know god knows what kind of tampering will be going on behind the scenes but that's the way i would play it if i were lebron operate in the shadows
1: look i think drastic times demand drastic measures and i think that he should follow your advice but just take it to like the nth degree like i think he should spend the offseason or like multiple months like in an undisclosed location. So we can all wonder like, is he in Nepal? Is he in Zimbabwe? Like where, (laughs) where is LeBron James like going to rediscover the magic? Right. And he could probably hand over all his social media accounts to people close to him. They could tweet out Bronny's highlight clips in the Las Vegas, you know, summer leagues and all that stuff. But LeBron should just disappear for months, you know, almost like a mini Michael Jordan retirement. Right.
0: Well, yeah, either that or like Bruce Wayne in the Batman Begins film where he just disappears for an (laughs) hour and finds that purple flower and trains. Uh, I think that's the move for LeBron this summer. And part of me is a little bit excited about the LeBron vacuum because I just don't know how much else there is to say about this Lakers season. I mean, I... Yeah, we're tapped out. There's no question. It's like, no. And I was
1: going to ask you that, though. Who are the winners of the LeBron vacuum? Like, can you see some personalities really benefiting not only from like the openness in the Eastern Conference, but the fact that there is no big shadow there um, kind of hanging over them? Like, are there guys who you're sort of pinpointing as guys you really want to see sort of blossom or take the next step with no LeBron in the picture?
0: Well, and that's the only thing that I find genuinely frustrating about the scenario you've laid out is I think guys like Steph, guys like Durant um, would be perfectly situated to go and take advantage of the vacuum at the top and sort of become the story and become the most compelling story in basketball. But like with the Warriors as stacked as they are, it's just hard for me to get that excited about any of this, you know? And so that's why I think we're all just going to have to to focus all of our energy on the East and um, and the chaos there because I do think each of those four teams has a decent case for making the finals. Granted, Boston continues to look miserable. And I mean, they've got a, a road trip this week. God knows what'll happen out in LA. Um, but I I think that that will be fun and that will have to sustain us. And then beyond that, let's just run it back next year with a hard reset up and down the league.
1: I think it's on the, fi- the Sixers uh, stars to kind of save this. Like, I feel like Embiid... Simmons, those guys have a massive opportunity to really take the next level in their career. Obviously, Giannis will too. I think that's basically inevitable. I mean, it's prophecy. You know, it was written and we've been, you know, tracking it step by step, but there's no question he's going to ascend the next level. Um, Any of the Toronto guys, I mean, that's the thing. Like, the personality wise in the Eastern Conference, like, there might be talented teams and there might be four teams you can get excited about, but just the personalities in terms of who's going to own, you know, like, just the playoff moments, those those situations that just stick with you for years. I mean, can Pascal Siakam really hit a game winner and then give us a great line post game? I'm not sure he's ready for that, you know. And so I, I do think there's going to be some problems if it's not Embiid stepping up and if it's not Giannis stepping up. Uh, I'm real curious to see where the star power and the magnetism is going to come from.
0: Well, it could be Kawhi, you know, for all of our <laughs> jokes throughout the year, and I believe. What was your quote on the last podcast about the best basketball players in the world?
1: I think I said something along the lines of very poignant and eloquent that the greatest basketball players in the world play basketball, bro, I think is what I said about (laughs) Anthony
0: Davis. (laughs) Yes, that was about AD, but it's also Open Floor's official response to the Kawhi Leonard resting policy. He's taking a game off every week at this point, so, you know... I think it's fair for everybody to give a side-eye to the way Kawhi has handled this regular season. And maybe, maybe his body just demands that at this point, which is its own red flag. But everything is still on the table this spring for him to come out and just annihilate people. And as much as we've talked about Giannis... I think I still trust Kawhi's offense a little bit more in the half court at the end of games. And Giannis still has to answer those questions. And um, so the possibility of like a full-blown Kawhi takeover is sitting there and uh, that would be fun too. But your point is well taken and Mark Stein's point is well taken. There's no question we are grasping for straws in all of this.
1: Right. And just the the last thought on this and I'll wrap it up. Uh, I do think that... The A-list stars, and you mentioned Durant, Steph, um, I think those guys actually have a real opportunity to show their personalities Knowing that they're not going to be, everything is, won't be viewed through this LeBron centric context. Like, I remember James Harden at last year's award show in LA when he was named the MVP, and like LeBron wasn't there because, you know, he didn't win. Uh-huh. Harden was really swagged out. Like, he was really feeling himself and like a little bit more expansive with his media comments than maybe he's been in the past. So I could see him taking a step forward in terms of like, okay, if they make the Western Conference finals, yeah. now all of a sudden he's like delivering these podium bombs, and we're all looking around saying, like, where was this guy? You know, the last couple couple of years. Um, I think Paul George, playoff P, you know, he's got a real opportunity here. Playoff P part two could be incredible. Uh, I could see Westbrook, you know, he's never really been reticent, you know, but I think he could be stepping forward a little bit. Sure. Uh, And then I think Durant is a wild card, you know, because I think he already feels like he's the best player in basketball.
0: Yeah.
1: He's already been telling himself that for years. And so, if, if they're able to pull things together, they're smacking teams in the Western Conference. There's no LeBron sort of waiting at the end of the tunnel to challenge them in the finals. Uh-huh. He has no real reason to hold back. Plus, you know, he's already fed up with everybody anyways, and he has been for months. So maybe it's Durant who winds up taking the, uh, the personality torch. I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, and credit to Durant. I think... Both Durant and Kyrie are leading the league in mopiness this year and um, just like general emo vibes. However, Kyrie is letting it affect his play on the court and um, KD hasn't, you know, and that is actually really impressive as, as kind of unsettled as he seems in some of these post game interviews and whatever he's still been like mostly phenomenal on the court. But he's so, a
1: machine, right?
0: Yeah, and and that is a credit to how historically dominant he is. And then, you know, I don't mean to make this entirely, you're kind of like moaning about uh, the playoffs without LeBron, and I'm kind of whining about the Warriors. But, you know, I hear you talk about Harden. Harden was so good against the Celtics on Sunday. And, you know, mm. Some of the shots he hits, you're just like, holy shit. I don't know what you do with this guy. If, if those are going in, there's just no good answer. And then Paul George has been hitting a lot of those same shots for the Thunder this year. The numbers he's put up, the efficiency, the volume, all of that is crazy. And it will be really cool to get to a place in the NBA where those guys actually have a reasonable shot at winning something that matters. Because it is. I mean, like, I, I think the one part of the hardened conversation that's complicated is, like, we haven't seen him do it in the playoffs. And I want to see him have a chance to to be on a level playing field where he can actually succeed and thrive and break through. And um, we're not there yet, but maybe we'll be there next spring.
1: Well said. Let's throw Dame Lillard into this mix, too, right? I mean, we know he knows 100%. his way around a microphone. We know he's had some clutch moments in the postseason, some other times where things really didn't go his way. The door is open. And I guess, you know, just message to people close to Damian Lillard, prepare some good material. This is a real opportunity to sell some sneakers. You know, there's no LeBron uh, looming over you. Get those three stripes moving.
0: Yeah, the stage is open. Um, But let's move on here, Ben, because honestly, I'm a little disappointed in you. You texted me and said you wanted to start with some thoughts on LeBron. But the biggest news of the day on the NBA internet, and granted, the day is only half over. We're recording this midday Monday. But the Phoenix Suns, your Phoenix Suns, our Phoenix Suns, uh, briefly occupied center stage in the NBA because Kevin Arnovitz went out there and wrote a fantastic look at the dysfunction. That has defined this franchise for as long as I've been covering the NBA. Um, but I want to read you one paragraph, and then I'll, I'll let you take this whatever direction you want. So
1: let me guess, see if I can guess which paragraph <laughs> it's going to be.
0: <laughs> yes, Kevin says. Uh, four years after naming McDonough general manager, Sarver acquired some live goats from a Diana Taurasi event at Talking Stick Resort Arena and planted them upstairs in McDonough's office. The stunt was both a practical joke and an inspirational message. The sons should find a goat of their own, one who dominates like Tarassi. The goats, unaware of their metaphorical connotation, proceeded to defecate all over McDonough's office. And I just... Ooh. I don't know if there's been a more evocative metaphor or scene in any sort and any NBA profile writing over the last like three or four years. I think that's right up there with Russ and the Fourth of July cupcakes that Lee wrote about when Durant (laughs)
1: left. No, it's a brilliant piece. I mean it's not just one hot paragraph. It's a hot song, Andrew. I mean he really he really did a nice job breaking down all aspects of the sun's dysfunction, something that I've loved to kind of harp on here over the last couple of years on the podcast. So, I mean, this was like manna from heaven to me. I, I can't even lie. <laughs> My question for you, though, point blank on this scene, who looks worse? Sarver for getting the goats and trying to challenge a GM to do what his job is. And he obviously would try to get a goat if he could, if they were just like growing on trees, McDonald yeah. would get one. So it's just ham handed and clumsy and completely unnecessary by Sarver. Or does McDonough look worse because um, this is the kind of respect that he's cultivated from his owner, and of what happened with the goats in terms of how they handled his carpet? I mean, well, who winds up being worse? Because you know, McDonough probably had to coordinate the cleanup process, um, and that's that's no fun at all.
0: There's no question, and and it's a it's a good point that I hadn't thought of when I when I first read it through, because you know was McDonough in his office with the Goats and he decided to just allow the Goats to roam free at at level four of the Suns basketball complex? Because no. in that case, if he's just trying to sort of like play along, then that is unquestionably much sadder. Uh, no. Because- <laughs> See,
1: here's, here's what I picture. He's coming back from a Chipotle lunch run, trying to be like Danny Ainge, you know, his former yeah. boss in, in, in Boston. And he comes back to like five goats eating up all of his scouting reports and like there's just crap all over the floor. That's what I picture.
0: That's that's definitely how I read it the first time. And I think that's the most charitable interpretation on the McDonough side. Uh, so in that case, I think Sarver definitely comes off the worst. And it's funny, like nobody in that Sun story comes off particularly well, except the co-GM who's apparently into analytics and doesn't get very much... Um, shine from Arnovitz yeah Trevor
1: Buckstein yeah like he was described as being very good with the cap but nobody knows who he is around the league which (laughs) is tough
0: exactly so there was more focus and more scrutiny placed on James Jones but really like everyone from top to bottom comes off poorly in that piece but Sarver is in a category of his own did you see the anecdote in there where it was Sun's Brass at a restaurant after the draft, and then <laughs> yes. Sarver pulls aside the restaurant owner and starts telling him about his business. And this is apparently like a five-star restaurant out in Phoenix, and the restaurateur is one of the finest restaurateurs on the West Coast, and Sarver's like, all right, so let me tell you how you make this a successful operation. I mean, this guy like, has just got to be Your scallops are whack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I can't imagine taking orders from him on a daily basis. That was my number one takeaway. Have you ever known anybody
1: like that in your life? Like, somebody who just thought they were an expert on all things? Please don't say me. I hope I don't come off that way. I mean, yeah. that is... I think that is one of the worst kinds of uh like not knowing what you don't know yeah uh, well and well.
0: i think it's one of the traps that any it's like big time success story can fall into as far as businessmen are concerned because if you make a billion dollars doing anything and particularly when you've started from scratch like you're gonna feel like you know how to solve every problem in any sector and um I think that it uh, that probably is an accurate portrayal of roughly like a third of NBA owners maybe more than half. Um, and Sarver is certainly kind of like the poster boy for that because he does I mean and Arnovitz methodically documents um, various times over the last couple of years where he's inserted himself into basketball discussions as if he knows like he charged into the locker room and started telling one of the big men how to set screens and <laughs> it's like bro like you made your money in real estate where is this coming from
1: no no question i mean when i read this piece i couldn't believe how demoralizing it would have read to our our friends like kj the suns fan the other suns fans that we hear from i mean there's just nothing in that organization that gets you excited from the owner to the interim co-GMs, which is just so ridiculous that that's a real title and that's how they've been operating, to the lack of scouts that they haven't replaced, you know, right on down the list. I mean, Sarver, the on-court product perfectly reflects what's happening off the court, right? And when I was reading that, I almost thought back to remember when the NBA stepped in with the Pelicans and basically Uh like provided financial support and David Stern was like overseeing Dell Dems for a while and all of that. I almost felt like if I was Adam Silver reading this story, I would be dispatching a key lieutenant down to Phoenix and just being like, look, guys, you're not up to the NBA standard here. Okay, we're not going to take away your franchise, but we're going to have some direct oversight in trying to pull this thing together and get you up to code because it seems like a health and hazard (laughs) violation at this point, you know?
0: Yeah, public safety inspectors need to... uh descend on the sun's facility and look the goats are sitting there defecating everywhere (laughs) that's Um. what i mean there's no way
1: that's that's sanitary come on
0: yeah i hear you man and the other thing that i found interesting is um the plethora of sources who are willing to talk off the record about or i guess on the record but anonymously about their experience in phoenix i mean there was no shortage of ex-sun's employees players coaches who are willing to be like look you you know it's dysfunctional but you have no idea how dysfunctional and really paint the picture and Arnovitz did a good job kind of bringing that out and confirming what a lot of us had suspected and um, to your point about Silver the thing I would add is the Suns I like they've taken on this kind of shit show reputation and and certainly it's well earned over the last like 6 or 7 years but for most of their history they've been one of the success stories around the NBA and a, a, I mean Phoenix Good isn't point. necessarily a small market but they're kind of a, a middle tier market and um and the Suns have thrived in that environment and it's just crazy how quickly they have tanked under Sarver's leadership I mean they had a few good years with the second half of the seven seconds or less Suns and then it just kind of went sideways from there and they've been like scraping rock bottom for three or four seasons now it's it's a complete disaster
1: And just to think, the biggest night of their entire season was Saturday night beating the Lakers, right? That's easily the best win that they're going to have all season. Nobody saw it coming. You know, LeBron's playoff hopes are on the line. They're going to come out and try to, you know, do whatever they can to make the playoffs. The Suns trounced them, you know, pretty convincingly. Yeah. And we're getting emails from their fans saying, you guys are idiots. DeAndre Ayton is so much better than you've been saying all along because they finally won a game for, I think, the second time in two months. So like, you know, this is their victory lap and then they have to wake up monday morning to goat poop stories and basically uh, a dissection of james jones's lack of uh, hands on like basketball scouting and and all of that that's really rough and by the way did we even talk about the josh
0: jackson incident from last week at all do we, do we mention that i have no idea what you're even referring to <laughs> the suns Ch- are like basically in no man's land as far as i'm concerned like they're okay. in, they're in purgatory L-
1: Josh Jackson had an autograph signing at a local establishment in Phoenix, okay? Uh-huh. He didn't show up and didn't tell anyone that he wasn't going to show up. People started tweeting angrily. The Suns had were on hand to document like uh, this this whole uh, you know, PR event, yeah. uh, autograph signing, photo taking whatever. The Suns fans start tweeting angrily at the team, "Where is he? Where is he?" James Jones personally shows up, has to tell all the player, uh, all the fans that Josh Jackson's not going to be appearing. Uh-huh. And then he basically tells everyone, go to the grocery store. You guys can buy beer and I'll pay for it, right? <laughs> so, what? <laughs> so then after that takes place... Uh, Josh Jackson's on Instagram Instagramming pictures of being at his friend's birthday party that very same night, like 15 miles away from where he was supposed to be at the autograph signing when he's confronted with all this evidence after the fact saying, why would you blow off the fans? You know, James Jones had to do all this. But instead of apologizing, Andrew Josh Jackson said that none of it should have ever been made public because things like that happen, and it shouldn't have been a talking point discussion. It's like, what? <laughs> you're Yikes. not even gonna You're not even gonna say that you blew everybody off so you could have dinner with your buddy? Um, that's just you know one more for the file of Phoenix Suns dysfunction. Well,
0: and yes, I, I <laughs> completely missed that, but I also feel like. The general trajectory of Josh Jackson and the, but like borderline disastrous first couple years here for him, not borderline off the, yeah well they're completely disastrous. off the radar off the radar as well, and I don't know I don't know what you even say I mean that's a top five pick that's a guy like the Suns had offers for Kyrie and decided to use that pick instead uh, apparently at least I mean that was reported there. A lot of teams around the league wanted that pick, and they looked at Josh Jackson and were like, this is the future of the franchise. And that has just been a complete strikeout. And then the eight stuff... They,
1: they took him over Fox and Lowry. Yeah. And Jonathan Isaac. I mean, and Zach Collins. I mean, and Donovan Mitchell. I mean, the list goes on.
0: Well, and the, pro- the whole problem they have in Phoenix is a culture of losing. And I'm not saying that De'Aaron Fox could have solved that by himself, but like... You see what Fox has done in Sacramento, and it's so clearly what the Suns need, and they didn't really give him a second thought because they had Eric Bledsoe in place at the time of that draft, and Bledsoe had apparently wanted out for six months by that point. So it's like, you know, you start looking at the the logistics in Phoenix, and it's just a total nightmare. And um, and the Aiton thing because we did, we had one Suns fan send an. Angry email about why we continue to hype up um, Jaron Jackson Jr. and Luka Doncic and Trey Young and never mention Aiden. It's because the Suns lost like 17 straight games about a yeah. week ago. That was their how dare us. Yeah. And so, like, I don't know. I don't know what to make of the numbers Aiden is putting up because the whole team is such a mess that it's like, all right, let's revisit this. When they rejoin the NBA a year from now, I'm not willing to like hype up anyone who's losing that much.
1: You know, my favorite Josh Jackson statistic, it goes like this. 53 players from the 2017 NBA draft have logged NBA playing time. Yeah, that's almost the entire draft. Pretty impressive, actually. Do you know where Josh Jackson ranks out of those 53 in terms of career win shares, you know, total oh production? And keep in mind, you know, he's been playing lots of minutes. He's already played more than 3,000 career NBA minutes for them. So he's had a real opportunity to show what he could do. Well, 53 guys in his class have played minutes. Where does he rank in win shares?
0: Um, I would guess like 46th.
1: 53rd, dead last.
0: Oh, that's brutal. <laughs> so it's like, oh, well. well He's even
1: worse than Frank (laughs) Nilekina, who's been a complete travesty, uh, you know, as well. So, I mean, that's just one of their misses, though. I mean, on the last episode, you were trying to run down all of Sacramento's draft misses before I cut you off. I mean, we could do an entire episode on Phoenix's misses.
0: Yeah, well, and if anything, I think you mentioned Suns fans coming off, like, the biggest win of the season and then having to wake up to this on Monday I don't think that this is actually bad news if you're a Suns fan. I think that reading this profile from Arnovitz would actually be pretty gratifying and validating because it really lays out in granular detail how screwed up things have been. And anyone who's paid attention to this team could sense some of that behind the scenes. But I think what made Arnovitz's piece so compelling was... um, Laying it out and and making it all pretty transparent for everyone to see, starting with the GOAT metaphor, but uh, not limited to that by any means.
1: I hear what you're saying, but they're still stuck with this guy, right? Like if there was a a companion piece and it came out from Woj and it was like, hey, sources, you know, Adam Silver urging Robert Sarver to sell NBA's lining up buyers, then I would be like, okay, yeah, this is not only validating, but like it's, you know, something you can really get excited about. It's heartening. But I think instead you've got the same guy, Robert Sarver. It's not like he thinks he knows less than he did two years ago. I mean, he's still the same guy. He's probably only going to be getting worse. And it is a fact that a lot of the NBA's worst owners just kind of got pushed out over the last decade, right? Whether you look at um, the Maloofs in Sacramento, you look at uh, Donald Sterling with the Clippers, yeah. uh, you know, you look at the, the pre-Joe Lakeup Warriors owners. Like a lot of those guys, all cashed out, right? So. I think Sarver's basically the worst one left, wouldn't you say? And I don't know how you can be competitive if you have the NBA's worst owner. Aren't you basically doomed?
0: I mean, look, I'm rereading the sentence here. Sarver acquired some live goats from a Diana Taurasi event and planted them (laughs) upstairs in his GM's office. And I'm curious whether he rented the live goats or bought the live goats. Given Sarver's reputation for thrift, he probably like rented them for a day as a practical joke.
1: Well, he probably had to rent them for the Tarassi event and was like, Look, I'm going to get my money's worth one way <laughs> yes. or the other. So it's like, let's just do two for one. What else can we use these goats for?
0: Yeah, let me get my money's worth and try to motivate my GM. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, look, you're right that there's no good answer in Phoenix, and, and that is. is is. Part of the piece as well. Um, I just know as a Wizards fan, I always find it gratifying when outsiders parachute in and are able to write coherently and say, well, this is a mess. And these eight decisions made absolutely no sense. And I, like I've written some of that myself, but I like when other people who are smart are able to make similar observations. Um, and so, Suns fans. I will say, uh, speaking of the wizards, the uh, the best reaction to that piece was like a very sincere text message from an, a friend of mine sending me that link and saying, you know, I really think there's a chance that Sarver could bite on John Wall. And that's reason alone, to have a little bit of hope for the future. And so that was another takeaway for me.
1: So John Wall is the goat. That's the Phoenix goat. That. Uh, <laughs> And he eluded Ryan McDonough for years.
0: Yeah, there we go. Um, But on that note, enough sons. Let's move on and talk about... Well, actually, let's talk about today's sponsor, Ben, because today's show is brought to us by Audible. And I actually have some questions for you. So, Ben, could listening make you a better parent, a better leader, or even a better person? Could listening to motivating fitness programs help get you fit and looking lean and mean for the summer? Could listening inspire you to start a new project? Because let me tell you, Ben, there has never been a better time to start listening on Audible. With Audible, you get access to an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, and now, with Audible Originals, the selection has gotten even more customized with content made for members.
1: Yeah, and made for our listeners too, Andrew. The Open Floor Globe will love Audible's collection of basketball books. It's a deep selection. And Audible members can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible Originals that you can't hear anywhere else. Audible members also get access to exclusive audio fitness programs to start the new year off on the right foot. Listen on any device, anytime, anywhere, at home, at the gym, on your commute, or just on the go. You'll also enjoy easy audiobook exchanges, rollover credits, and an audiobook library you keep forever, even if you cancel. Go to audible.com slash floor or text floor to 500-500 and listen for a change. That's audible.com slash floor or text floor to 500, 500
0: So let me ask you real quick. They asked us for book recommendations. Do you have a book recommendation or have you been too busy to, to actually read a book?
1: No, I skipped over that part of the ad copy, obviously, Andrew. <laughs> um,
0: okay. Well, I have one recommendation which is Boomtown, and I read the first... That was my recommendation six months ago. <laughs> you Get out of here,
1: Angie. You're well,
0: crazy. Well, I, I, was it yours or mine? Either way, I read the first, like, 75 pages at the end of my vacation and then have not been able to pick it up since. So the point is that both you and I have been bad readers during the basketball season, and listeners should go out and be better readers than us. And if you're already listening to a podcast... You might as well listen to a book instead. You'll probably learn more. So um, that's as sincere an endorsement as we can provide. Go download Boomtown and listen to people who are smarter than us.
1: Sam Anderson, great writer, great guy, has Blazer's roots, spent basically a year or more of his life in Oklahoma City embedding with their culture, digging in far deeper than I did at the Banjo Museum, Andrew. I can promise you that. Uh, (laughs) So many great stories in that book. The history is really
0: interesting. And then kind of weaving in the thunder anecdotes, um, obviously that's like crack for me, but uh, he did a really good job, at least in the part of the book that I read. And I also really like his New York Times stuff. So on that note, let's get back to the regular podcast. Rubin says, it's pretty clear that the Bulls are not tanking for Zion, and at this point, not even for R.J. Barrett. There isn't really another <laughs> generational prospect like Zion coming up through college until maybe Bronny James, but he's obviously going to end up on the Lakers. I personally am not crazy about the idea of building around the nucleus of Levine, Lowry, and OPJ. Auto Porter Jr. for the uninitiated out there. Uh, but am I wrong when I say that this nucleus won't ever make it past the first round? So what do you think, Ben? What are your Bulls thoughts at this point in the season? No,
1: I'm I'm clearing out for you because it's about time you pounded your chest about Lowry because you were like a huge Lowry stand down the stretch of last season when that was not in fashion. Yep. I don't know if you're actually right about the big things, but you might have gotten right, you know, the, the broken... <laughs> Broken clock might have been right on this one.
0: I was right on Lowry. I do feel good about it, in part because there have been some fits and starts for Lowry. I mean, when he came back at the start of this year, he didn't look great. He had the injury that that kind of like sabotaged his first two months. And um, my faith did begin to wane, but now he looks a lot more comfortable, a lot more assertive on offense. And I do think... I also feel good about Otto Porter and and being right on him and right that the Bulls were smart in trading for him uh, because I think the two of those guys, you know, Ruben didn't mention Wendell Carter Jr., but Otto Porter Jr., Lowry, and Wendell Carter are going to be pretty solid for Chicago. And the only way that front line gets displaced is if they do somehow land number one and draft Zion, and then obviously you have to trade one of those guys. But... Um, I think that they're in good shape. I haven't mentioned Zach Levine, who has been really good over like over the last couple weeks. He's he's had some really nice nights. Um, you know, he torched the Celtics. I just I still don't really trust that dude. And I think if Ruben is worried about this nucleus not making it past the first round, I think Levine is is where that worry starts. But like Lowry and Otto Porter Jr. And, and Wendell Carter, those guys are really good and, and worth getting excited about. And I also think like the Bulls have been so lost for the last couple of seasons that now is not the time to start hand-wringing about like, the ceiling. I think even over the last two weeks, they've won some games that represent real progress and probably the first progress we've seen from this team in several years. So that alone is a win.
1: No, totally. I don't ever understand when like rebuilding franchises worry about like what's our playoff ceiling. Like they're they're concerned about are they going to be able to keep up in like the 100 meter sprint against Usain Bolt. Like just focus on walking first. <laughs> yeah, like right now you're stumbling jog around the mile
0: and call that yeah. a day, you know?
1: That is exactly what I'm saying. I like the Lowry, Carter, Porter fit is awesome. I like the the Porter move for them when they made it. He's obviously played a lot better, you know, since the move. Yep. Um I don't know how sure people realize. Larry's averaging basically twenty and nine right now, um, which you know at age twenty one, that's pretty incredible numbers, even on a kind of a losing team. Uh, the three point efficiency has been there, and on very high volume and some high degree of difficulty shots too. So he's looking like a very you know bright member of the future. Now in terms of Zach, he torched the Celtics. You mentioned he torched the Hawks, but he's one of those guys where like. When he's blowing up in these meaningless March games, you've got to kind of raise that side eye and still kind of wonder, okay, what's this guy's long term fit? Yeah. Um, but but they do need that backcourt punch because I don't think Carter is going to be a very high volume scorer. Uh, Lowry, you know, to me he can be a number one option, mm-hmm. um, you know, as he goes forward. But he's going to need some help. He can't do it by himself. And then we know Porter is not going to be like that big time. You know, nothing more really than a third scorer. So Levine does have a fit for them. I'm just not sure he's really that good. Uh, I, I don't think his impact is there yet. He hasn't really made progress on that level. And of course, they've got to figure out the point guard position too. So I don't think that they're as far away as they appeared at the start of the season. Yeah. I do think we should give them credit for the Carter draft pick, the development of Lowry, you know, and the Porter move. But at the same time, like, is Boiling your guy? Well. Like, If that's really your game plan... <laughs> And then you're going to be drafting, you know, whoever it might be, a top five pick and bringing him into that system uh, with that coaching personality. I mean, to me, like the first round of playoffs, I'm not seeing that.
0: Yeah. Well, and that was going to be my final question. To your point on Lowry, though, his numbers on the season are very impressive. But his numbers in February were even more impressive. He put up 26 and 12. Um, and you know, he shot 35% from three, which can actually probably improve. Um, and he, yeah, he can definitely be the number one option. I don't know how much credit they get for developing him, um, or, or drafting him. Like to me, this does kind of feel like a blind squirrel situation and the Boylan thing. Cause that's the, that's the thing we've gotten a few emails demanding that we give credit to the Bulls and their long-term vision. And um, I don't know, I'm, I'm a little wary of, you know, crediting them for any of this. And, and that goes for Boylan as well. And maybe that's just because we're too jaded and, um, and we do have to give Boylan some credit because they're putting together some impressive performances in games that don't really matter, but they still, they, there has been some progress Um I just we I'm we not do sure. not have to
1: go overboard. They're eighteen and forty-six. Okay, <laughs> okay. Boylan okay. barely survived a mutiny. They're putting up big numbers against bad teams because there's a lot of bad teams in the Eastern Conference, and they have to play a lot of them. Yeah, um, I think big picture in terms of direction, you know, where are they going? Uh, they were very smart to flip Jabari, which was a terrible move into a quality move with Porter. So they definitely deserve credit for the second part of that. Yeah. But you also have to remember that they're the ones who paid Jabari Parker in the first place, which was a real red flag for a front well, office in terms of that being your your uh, your big offseason move, right?
0: Yeah. It did end up working out for them, though, because the, the Wizards needed to be bailed out of that luxury tax bill. So, um, you know... Well, if you
1: can convince me that that was Gar's master plan, his long-term plan, then... Uh, Then I'll believe it, but I don't think that that was his game plan. (laughs) I I don't think they saw Jabari Parker going as far south as fast as he did when they signed him.
0: But this is how the the worst GMs work, though. You know, it's like Kaiser Sose and the greatest trick the devil ever pulled. You know, the same way Ernie Grunfeld will occasionally pull a decent move out of his ass, like Gar and Pax are just competent enough to retain the benefit of the doubt with ownership. <laughs> and this is how they remain permanently employed. So I do think it's it's more of a feature than sort of a bug with, uh, with their whole plan up there. That every now and then, like once a year they get something right and it is enough to make ownership forgive the like five or six incomprehensible decisions they make. And that's part of the Bulls brand at this point.
1: Do you think they should take Ja Morant if they don't get number one? I could see that being a nice fit.
0: Dude, I know nothing about the draft this year. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it's usually my thing. Shocking
1: admission from the guy who pretended to be a draft expert for the last four years and hung it over my head on every single episode. I
0: know. I feel pretty good about my um, draft nerd credentials over the past five to ten years, but this year, like... It just is a really weak class and none of these guys past Zion are that exciting to me. Um, there are a lot of wings and I, I think it's a lock that like two or three of these six, eight wings are gonna turn into pretty solid um, starters. but like beyond that, there's just not that much to get excited about. And I think that this year there's going to be less excitement about the draft than any point in the last five years because free agency is gonna be such a big deal that we're going to get to draft night. It's going to be like, all right, so where does Zion go? I don't really care about any, anything else that happens tonight.
1: That's a very reasoned take. I understand where you're coming from on that uh, way to kind of excuse yourself for not doing the homework. I appreciate that part of it. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm just kidding. All right. No, I just said John Moran, cause it's really the only point guard near the top of the board and they badly need a point guard. And if I'm looking at like R.J. Barrett, how does he really fit? If you've got Porter and Levine, I mean, maybe you're going to start Barrett down the road and have Levine as your super sub scorer. Yeah. Um, I just think they've got some fit questions there with a lot of these topics if they don't get Zion and maybe Morant, an athletic point guard, ball handler, you know, just kind of a star potential, I think, in terms of just the, the nature of his game and his athleticism. Uh, That could be the answer for them.
0: Yeah. I mean, just to return to my draft nerd roots, the one guy I have really liked since he was a junior in high school. And, you know, I went to a couple uh, scouts and was like, look, we need to be talking more about Darius Garland and was sort of met with a side eye. But he, while not playing at Vanderbilt this year, and he missed most of the season, he has started to rise up draft boards. I think he's, I mean, he can shoot it pretty well and um, and fits with where the point guard position has gone over the last 5, 10 years. So I think he's another one on par with Morant. I, Morant is more explosive from what I can tell, and Garland is more skilled. But um, that's another one who could make sense for the Bulls. I think they should just sign somebody, though. Like some of these... Like, Lowry is going to be entering his prime, and I don't know if you want to wait on a 19-year-old point guard, um, and there, there are going to be point guards available to sign. So,
1: Yeah, and that will be the real test, by the way, of how much credit Boylan deserves. If they can get a solid starting point guard in free agency and they sign him, he comes in, plugs and plays, fits with the system, and they go, and, and Lowry takes the next step next season, Yeah, then you can convince me that Boylan is a net positive. Uh, I don't see that happening, you know? If I'm a starting point guard, are you going to go sign with the Chicago Bulls?
0: No, I don't see it happening, but uh, let me tell you, I will be delighted if it happens, and if we get there a couple years from now, and Boylan gets the last laugh, um, old Coach Hardass up there, Captain Accountability, no, he was General Accountability, maybe? Um, <laughs> either way, <laughs> not sure what he's yeah, He probably got is. promoted
1: <laughs> along the way somewhere, but... I think our message to Lowry is simple. Don't be the next Devin Booker. Don't be this high-scoring guy stuck on a team going nowhere for years and years, just content to sign that second contract. You know, I would get out in front here, down the stretch, into the summer, campaigning to get a big-time point guard. Say the time is now, and you want help. Uh, it's never too early to start that conversation, because it's going to be a long, long couple years in Chicago if you don't get a real point guard.
0: Yeah. There you go. Well, we've now done like 15 minutes on the Bulls, 20 minutes on the Suns. It's been quite a day. (laughs) Welcome to March, everyone.
1: (laughs) Andrew, welcome to the LeBron vacuum. I just tried to warn you about it for 20 minutes off the top.
0: I know, and I didn't believe you, but here we are. Uh, Let's finish off with two more questions. Actually, we also have to talk about Eric Bledsoe. Um, So first, Eric Bledsoe, I chose this question from Alex who said, I've recently noticed some parallels between this year's Bucks and the first Warriors title team. The Warriors at that point were relatively inexperienced and beating the crap out of teams in the regular season, but people weren't convinced, just like the Bucks, Both teams had also fired their coach the summer before and embraced modern basketball concepts. So what does Giannis Inc. think of these eerie parallels? And Ben... To me, I think the biggest difference between where the Warriors were then and where the Bucks are now is that everyone in Milwaukee is going to be expensive much sooner than that Warriors nucleus was um, because, you know, the Warriors had already signed Klay Thompson in 2015. I believe they had signed an extension before that season began. And then they signed Draymond Green to a max before the cap exploded. And in Milwaukee, this Bucks team is gonna be capped out as soon as this summer hits, you know? And and that began with Bledsoe this weekend. It'll continue with Middleton, whatever they want to pay Brogdon. And so that's why I'm less excited about the parallels to the to the Warriors and the potential for like a Bucks era over the next four or five years.
1: Yeah, no disrespect to where he was going with that. I mean, I just don't think it's that uh, close of a parallel the big difference is Draymond Green right because yep. if your number one guy is Giannis you can talk me into him having a a long shelf as a top three guy in the league just like Steph Curry if your number two guy is Middleton you can talk me into you know having a similar role with him and Clay Thompson right yeah but Brooke Lopez you know Incredible season. He's not Draymond Green, right? Like, I right. mean, he's not that elite, like third level guy, and that's what they don't have. I think in this parallel situation, though, Bledsoe would wind up being kind of like Andre Iguodala when they first got him. You know, Ooh. not that far off in terms of you know salary numbers and, and kind of supporting role and and being a nice fit and kind of filling in some of the gaps that the star guys don't do. And so, I think from that standpoint. Giannis Inc. should be elated about the Bledsoe signing. I thought the, the price, like compare Bledsoe's price to Drew Holiday's price, you know, what yes. the Pelicans had to pay Drew last summer. And, you know, you're mentioning being capped out. Well, they'll be capped out, but, but still able to keep a lot of their core and maybe all the core that they want to keep together this summer, right? Yep. Like that Holiday signing basically makes it so that the Pelicans couldn't uh, add any other meaningful talent around Davis for the foreseeable future when they, when they committed that money. And to me, Bledsoe plays a very similar role to Holiday. I guess I'd rather have Holiday in a vacuum than Bledsoe, but not by that much. And certainly I wouldn't want to pay him, like what, almost twice as much money, something along those lines, yeah. as what Bledsoe is getting here on his new deal. Um, I thought for Bledsoe individually, it's a real sign of faith and forgiveness based on how he played in last year's playoffs yep. to give him this money now, to not ask him to prove it during the postseason. And so I think uh, for him, like he should have all of his focus now on playing better in the playoffs and being that number two, number three guy when they need him, uh, you know, in these postseasons, because a lot is going to be riding on his shoulders, especially in some of these key matchups, whether it's Boston, um, or Toronto. I mean, he's going to be very important in terms of defending quality point guards in head to head matchup situations. So I guess big picture, I'm very high on Milwaukee's future. Obviously, given Giannis's age and how much improvement he's shown here over the last couple of years, how much more improvement there is still to go. Yeah, and even just these, these last couple of months. I mean, the shooting has come along. It's become more of a weapon for him. It's not all the way there yet, but it has been a, a difference maker. Yeah. Um. But I don't see a six-year reign of terror, right? Because right. It's the talent level at, at the top is not comparable.
0: Yeah, and I think that that was my point is that the Warriors were both better and cheaper than what the Bucks are working with and uh, and luckier yeah, and
1: better timing, right? It
0: totally. It was once in a generation timing that is still honestly crazy to think about when you go back and and relive, relive each of those moves. But um but Giannis could still be superhuman and make it all work in Milwaukee, which is pretty cool. And I agree with you also that what that Bledsoe deal was was a show of faith from Milwaukee to Bledsoe, but also Bledsoe putting faith in Milwaukee and saying, look, I'm not going to go out this summer and try to nickel and dime you for an extra 5 to $10 million and see what I can get from a team like the Bulls or some other thirsty-ass franchise. Like, I think <laughs> it was pretty cool that he basically looked around and said, I'm really happy here. And he told me this in a piece I wrote about a month and a half ago that he was... Happier this season than he's been at any point in his career. And he had a great relationship with Coach Bud, and um, he had a great re- relationship with the other guys in that locker room. And he wanted to be here um, or wanted to be in Milwaukee. But it's really cool that he then acted on that and said, Look, let's make this work. And it speaks to what Milwaukee has right now, which is like one of the three or four teams in the NBA. That is actually happy and having fun every night. And uh, so it's cool to see that sort of all those cliches actually validated.
1: Yeah. The other person it speaks highly of is Rich Paul because we've had this image of him jockeying for superstar guys, trying to like pull them out of this market and that market, you know, almost convincing Anthony Davis to throw loyalty and all that stuff out the window. Uh, He was able to get. Eric Bledsoe, out of Phoenix, right? I mean, it got a little bit ugly there, but he did a really nice job of finding a home that made sense for Milwaukee. It wasn't a natural fit right from day one. I mean, they had to go through the coaching change. Uh, They required a little bit of patience. Bledsoe didn't play well in the playoffs last year, as we've been over time and time again. But it became very clear early in this season that it was an awesome fit for player and team both ways, right? And so for Rich Paul to not say, okay, let's bleed these guys for you know, an extra 10 or 15% in the summer, or let's like come up with some crazy offer from the Bulls or whoever else and really like, you know, stick it to the Bucks. I mean, that potential was there. If he was going to be operating with the Anthony Davis, like brass knuckles uh playbook, uh, the Bledsoe thing would not have gotten done during the season, right? And so yeah. I think credit to him for showing that he's got, uh, you know, more than just one pitch, right? Like, you know, Quality baseball pitchers—the at fastball, the change up the curveball. I mean, this was a little bit of a curveball, I thought, from from Rich Paul. Look and, at uh, you
0: with the ch- baseball analogies. God, yeah, that was rough. I'm, I apologize
1: <laughs> about that one, but <laughs> March really—that's what get he did weird. here. Yeah, um, no, he he changed speeds though. You no, know what I mean? Like, I completely he went a different agree. direction com- than he's been painted.
0: Yes, I completely agree, and it's a great point because that—that's what I was thinking about as I was sitting on the baseline in Houston talking to Eric Bledsoe after a shooter out, it was like, he's talking about wanting to be there, how much he loves it, and I'm thinking back to his last free agency, which was one of the first situations we saw Rich Paul kind of manage as an agent to someone other than LeBron, and and he did a great job. He got Bledsoe a great deal with the Suns, but it got really, really ugly. And it lasted almost and the it entire carried over. summer. Yeah. It, and,
1: and it carried over into the
0: rest. I mean, I think those hurt feelings colored his relationship down there, don't you? Absolutely. And that's why I was sitting there thinking like, okay, so both sides seem to be pretty happy. I wonder whether that will be true in the middle of July. And it's just really cool that they uh, kind of addressed that issue before we got there. So, um, and it,
1: it's great for horse too, because now he can go to Middleton and be like, look, you know, it's, it, it, it that is one parallel to like Draymond and clay, both kind of giving a little discounts to, uh, to golden state where it kind of creates this like culture of peer pressure almost, you know, like if I'm a horse, I'm going straight to Middleton and being like, look, man, like when you first got to Milwaukee, you know, you were nothing like, this is your home. This is where you've been. We built you up into this all-star level player. You know, you can <laughs> succeed on this level. Eric just gave us a really nice team-friendly contract over here. Don't you want to be a part of this and keep this thing going? Like, if you give us a little back, now we can keep Brooke. Maybe we can keep Brogdon. Like, it just kind of creates this uh, climate where you're not paying that deal to Middleton that makes you think, man, like, that's a crusher, you know? Like, that kills the cap now. It kills the flexibility going forward. uh, And that's the next one to watch, to me.
0: Yeah, I would say... Most of that um, hypothetical pitch from Horst makes sense, but you never want to say you were nothing in the middle of your free agency pitch to somebody. Look, Andrew, <laughs> come on now.
1: You really think I'm gonna I'm gonna phrase it like that to my guy okay, Chris Money right. Middleton? Come this is on now. A brainstorming I'm just saying, session. like I hear you. <laughs> I'm just saying, like Milwaukee has benefited his career in a big time way. Okay. Like, there's no way I think that Middleton has that same level of excitement about staying there too you know being around the Bucks on Friday after the deal got done first of all they were all so genuinely happy for Bledsoe and sometimes the superstars just kind of give the lip service when their teammates get paid because they're just like yeah whatever yep Giannis was very very excited about it I mean no no two ways about it he didn't even want to talk about himself he wanted to kind of keep the focus on Bledsoe because he had played so well against the Lakers and also had just gotten paid that uh, earlier that afternoon. The vibe around that team is awesome right now. Uh, that will never last forever, and that's my big warning to like the Bucks fans who emailed in. Don't just assume because you have one strong season that you're about to be this little dynasty like the Warriors. I mean, things can change so quickly. Ask the Lakers, ask the Celtics, ask the Sixers what they've been going through here over the last 24 months. Yeah, Enjoy it now because next year is not promised.
0: Okay, and speaking of things not being promised, um, two final questions here. The first, what would the Celtics season look like if you replaced Kyrie Irving with Steph Curry? And then the second, Joey says, uh, and that first one was from Dylan. but Joey here says, um, when we talk about the term best in the Best Player Alive convo, are we talking about skill or dominance? Maybe both? Because if we're considering skill, KD obviously takes the cake due to Giannis' current lack of a reliable jump shot. But switch the conversation to dominance, and you two can surely agree... Giannis is the most dominant player in the league as he maims at least one player on a a nightly basis. However, taking both the qualities of skill and dominance into account, neither player seems to inhabit and dominate both categories. However, there is one player who passes both tests. It's Stephen Curry! So, um... What do you think of that argument? And the reason I bring up the Kyrie question is because I actually had that thought watching the Boston game, Boston-Houston on Sunday afternoon. Like, Kyrie, you may have been right.
1: (laughs) I'm 100% right about Kyrie. I saw him a mile away. (laughs)
0: Look— It's just discombobulated when he's out there, and they need to figure that out. Kyrie is not playing his best basketball right now, which is half the problem. But um, it's a mess, and he doesn't make his teammates better. That's never been his game. But when you do imagine Steph in Boston, it's hard for me to imagine them winning anything less than 55 or 60 games, in part because of all the intangibles that come with Steph. And the way he makes life easier for his teammates. And, um, and I think that speaks to his overall value at, that oftentimes gets discounted.
1: I mean, I think that they would win. If he, if he's healthy for the whole season, that's a 62-win team at minimum with Steph Curry instead of Kyrie Irving. I was dead on about Kyrie the whole way through. You thought I was crazy when I first brought up the issue. It's nice to see you finally slowly, you know, realizing that I knew what I was talking about. Well, let, he's just not clear. consistent <laughs> enough week to week, game to game, month to month. That's just not who he is or really has ever been. Yeah. And that's a big issue when he's your best player and everybody's looking and, and turning to him and you're trying to do it your way rather than the team way, which is what worked for them so well last season. Like, you really have to pull guys through. It's the same deal with LeBron in L.A. If you want to do it your way, you have to be delivering every single night. Otherwise, people check out. And the Lakers, you look at their team, guys are checking out left and right. It's obvious. And I'm seeing a lot of the same stuff from the Celtics, frankly. And, you know, Kevin O'Connor had a nice piece in The Ringer about just, like, what the mood has been like in the locker rooms here over the course of this season. Guys not really chatting, not talking, not botting together. Yep. That stuff goes back to the leader, and you know Kyrie has set the tone with some ridiculous comments all season long, and he has to own all of it. Steph Curry would never have done that, and you can guarantee the mood would have been better. Now, in terms of this question, best player alive, what are we using to judge this? Before
0: we get to that part, I do think um, I I enjoyed the KOC piece on the Celtics that ran Monday, Um, and I think what's happening, and one of the things Kevin said is that the idea that this is all Kyrie's fault is also wrong. Kyrie has played a role, but there's a lot that's been going on in Boston. And I think one of the themes of this season, well there have been two themes that have have persisted in several different places. And number one it's that superstars really can set the tone whether it's KD, whether it's Kyrie, whether it's LeBron. I you know, we've seen those teams Be kind of miserable because of the guys at the top of the roster and then the other thing that's happening in Boston that's happened from a few different places when you try to trade half the roster or make them available in trade talks in a very public way it kind of sends teams into a tailspin at least I mean that's that's the the one through line in both LA and Boston and uh and I think that matters as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Danny Ainge has not caught nearly the amount of uh, crap that Magic Johnson has, right? But I guess what you're saying is he's sort of guilty of the same public posturing and, you know, is Tatum available? Is he not available and all that, yeah. that the Lakers were up to, just maybe on a, a slightly smaller scale.
0: That's kind of what I, I think mean. That's, like-
1: I think that's fair, but I think it goes beyond just what the front office is doing. I think it's the contract situations. I mean, they knew the Rogier thing was going to be a problem coming into this season. They should have traded him last summer. Uh, when they, they could have sold high, they decided not to. Uh, they knew some of these other contract situations coming up, whether it's Jalen Brown or whatever else. I laid out my prescription for how to handle Jalen Brown before the season. To me, I can't really tell whether you know they followed any spe- uh, particular blueprint in terms of what his role is supposed to be or what they're going to be able to promise him down the road. And so you know that fit hasn't really worked. The loyalty to Morris has made really no sense to me at all. And then Horford, who I kind of predicted would fall off before last season. I think that's starting to happen a little bit this year, uh-huh. uh, kind of on a, a delayed, you know, a delayed setup there. And you know, he was never a top ten player, so you know that step back is going to impact things uh, because you know he, he's just not starting Whoa. from you know the the A list level
0: for them. And he did a lot of the things that Kyrie couldn't do or wouldn't do in terms of setting the tone and creating on offense. I mean, just in a, a literal technical sense, like he was the creator, not Kyrie. And when he takes a step back and isn't able to even be out there for as many minutes as he, as he had been in years past, like that matters as well. So it's been a, a failure yeah. on a number of fronts.
1: But I don't blame Horford for that stuff. I blame Kyrie for that stuff, right? Because if you're stepping up to do that, you got to be doing it better <laughs> than the guy who did it previously. And that hasn't happened.
0: Well, <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to add is that you... Are right on Kyrie, and I've never necessarily argued that he's a creator. I've just argued that it's not as important as it was. But thinking back now, you also laid it on so thick. I remember you texting me a picture of a John Stockton jersey and saying, this is what a real point guard (laughs) looks like. So I'm happy that you're right, but I still don't, I can't quite get there in spirit.
1: I understand. I understand your reservations because he's not really a bucket getter after your heart. Yeah. Uh, But look, if you put John Stockton on the Celtics, that team would win sixty games too. I mean, same thing as Steph Curry. It'd be a lot better than this Kyrie Irving version. Old
0: Johnny Stockton anymore? Ain't that the truth? Um. Talk
1: about a guy you could count on day in, day out for a decade. (laughs) There you go. You can't even count on Kyrie from week to week.
0: Baseball metaphors and John Stockton. You really are a seventy-year-old man today. I love it.
1: That's all you need. The best player alive conversation that they were asking about, I kind of felt like Joey hasn't been paying attention. We've laid out all the criteria for how we judge players in all these top 100 episodes. Joey, come on now, keep up. It's not just about, okay, skill or dominance. It's about proven track record in the postseason. It's about consistency, reliability, availability uh, in terms of your health and all of those factors combine, you know, go into the porridge that I use. Um, from that standpoint, that's why Curry is in my conversation. He checks a lot of those boxes. Yep. The durability thing, uh, makes me a little bit nervous. I think Kevin has been better than Steph in the big moments of the postseason. So my conversation for the best player alive was Kevin, Steph, and Giannis. Uh, to me, Kevin is one, uh, you can have a real strong debate about Steph or Giannis at two. I'd probably go Steph at two right now. And then Giannis at three, you know, pending his postseason performance. Um, but, you know, I don't think, uh, the argument for right now, Steph Curry being the best overall player, based on not only this season but just like the last three years, uh, you know, when when you zoom it out and look at kind of who's been the most consistently dominant in the biggest moments, uh, given his injury history uh, last season and a few other things, I think that docks him a little bit.
0: Yeah, um, and I have long been a Steph believer, and we've we've gone on too long, so I don't want to prolong this. Uh, I do. Have more doubts about what Steph Curry would be on his own after watching him this season than I have um, in the last few years. I think there's something to the. It was the
1: All Star game, honestly. It was the All Star (laughs) game, wasn't it? Because I've been like trying to plant those seeds just to test you a little bit, because you have been a a pure believer Steph guy for years. I feel like that all-star game performance scarred you because he let Giannis down.
0: He did let Giannis down. And look, I don't forget, and I know where my loyalties lie in the end, and wherever I stand, I stand with Giannis. Um, but uh, I don't know. I It's part of the reason I'm so excited to see Steph on his own team because if he does come through and if he can win a title without KD there, I think that vaults him into a entirely different tier uh, historically and would be wild um, and then you can start asking like if you really look at the track record and what he's done over the last 5 to 10 years like he I mean if he wins another title without Durant on top of a title this June that's like 5 and 6 I think I don't know I'm losing track of all the Warriors titles and he I mean that's a better resume than LeBron um, but We're not there yet. So, uh, and for now, I I agree that I would have Giannis and Durant slightly ahead of Steph. But for now, we've gone on too long. We can also have a separate conversation about why NBA players still kind of underrate Steph. But it's March, Ben. You've got to be someplace. I've got to be someplace. Uh, this, this is more fun than I expected it to be, considering how dead the NBA is right now.
1: No question about it, Andrew. And we got some great questions from our listeners at OpenFloorMail at gmail.com. Also, check us out. On Apple Podcasts by searching for open floor. That's two words. Find our page, scroll down, it will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. We're also on the world famous slash open floor. And don't forget, Andrew, we're going to have a long awaited lantern segment on the next podcast. So check me out on Instagram at ben.golliver for this week's lantern prompt. I can't wait to hear from everybody on whatever it might be. Andrew, until later this week, I will talk to you.
0: All right, man, take it easy.